Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom, and Aksko Sameach. Growing up, I loved Sukkot. It was my favorite holiday. And I couldn't tell you exactly why, but there was always a different feeling around Sukkot. It might have been that we didn't need to use matzah to make s'mores. We could actually just use normal graham crackers. And so camping out and doing all these different things around Sukkot was fun. And even before I understood the concept of this is the season of our joy, as a child, I had already attached the idea of fun to Sukkot. And there's a lot of traditions around Sukkot. Uh, You dwell in a sukkah, for one, and the rabbis talk to great length on what qualifies as a sukkah and what does not. So it's not just any old structure you happen to to throw up. Traditionally, you recite the Hillel daily, uh, which is opposed to the other major festivals. Uh, You have the lulav and the etrog, which we did earlier. We, We wave the lulav. And also, the sacrifices for Sukkot varied from day to day, unlike, say, unleavened bread, where it's the same thing. And there's also a rich tradition with Sukkot the rabbis discuss around water. And there was a water-pouring ceremony in the temple. And if you don't understand the different traditions there in Judaism around water, you're going to miss a lot of different things, uh, especially in the Gospel of John. Say, when the adulterous woman was brought before Yeshua and his response there. There's a lot of Jewish custom that is rich around this. So I titled it, How to Live in God's Sukkah. And I'm going to go ahead and give everyone the answer up front and in full, and then we're going to talk about it. You live in God's sukkah, you live in his presence by praying because everything depends on God and his work. And you work as if everything did depend on you because he is the one who succeeds us. And if we plant seed, he will make it grow. But don't be the person who sits there leaning on a shovel praying for a hole. The festival of Sukkot first appears in Vayikra 23 in Leviticus where uh, Moshe wrote, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this month, the seventh month is the festival of Sukkot, a seven day period of the Lord. It shall be a permanent statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, last year I discussed exactly what Sukkot was calling to remembrance, whether it was that first night or whether it was a whole 40 years or whether it was kind of something else entirely. So if you want to go back, I discussed that far more in depth in my Sukkot drash I did last year. The thing is, when this commandment was being given, Sukkot was not an unfamiliar title. Dwelt in Sukkot was also a place. So back in Exodus, in Shemot, chapter 12, when they were leaving Egypt, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, asides from children. That was Israel's first stop in the wilderness. So in Leviticus 23, when it says that you will remember, I had you dwell in booths, I had you dwell in Sukkot, was it saying that whole time in the wilderness, or is it instead that very first night when over a million people 
left Egypt for a 40-year camping trip. And if anyone knows my wife, something I learned when we got married is we need lists for everything. If we're going camping, if it's a day out, we need a list for the stuff we have. And that was very much opposed to my style of planning, which was make it up as you go. And that worked great for single me. Uh, married me and then me as a dad, totally different story. You need lists for things. And Israel leaned into God hard because they had no plan for food besides what they had on them. No plan for water. It was the wilderness. This wasn't going backpacking in the mountains in Washington state. There were scorpions and snakes and all kinds of things that are a problem. You don't have protection. Where are you going to use the restroom? Remember the shovel I mentioned? There are a lot of problems just going out. So they leaned into God and they trusted in him. They left Egypt knowing that the same God who had humbled Egypt would be there for them. And he was. And the rabbis discuss how they built their sukkahs, and in response, God tabernacled among them with his presence. And he brought bread from heaven, and he brought water from a rock. But even then, in Exodus 12, that's not the first place Sukkot is mentioned. All the way back in the sheets in Genesis, with Yaakov, Jacob, when he had made up with Esau, it says in chapter 33, then Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Yaakov journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Jacob didn't trust Esau. They'd made up to a degree, but Jacob didn't really want Esau around, and Esau kind of wanted to keep an eye on his brother Yaakov. Uh, and that's a problem for Yaakov, for Jacob. So in response, he gets to Sukkot, and he built these booths. And uh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher makes an interesting point in the Tur HaRoch, he says, the Torah reports that Yaakov built himself a very strong and solid house, one that could serve as a fortification against an attack by Esau. So Jacob just didn't want him around, but he started actively preparing for the idea that Esau might wake up one day and go, you know what, I don't really forgive that guy. And so he was a little paranoid about it. So the first time we see Sukkot mentioned is this idea of protection, an idea of defense. And then go back to connecting that first Sukkot with Yaakov to all of Israel at Sukkot after leaving Egypt. And the rabbis seem to pick up on this same thing in the Orachayim. It says, he demonstrated with us when he took us out from the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders. And the Sukkot, of which verse states, he caused us to dwell in, were the clouds of glory which surrounded them, lest they be struck by heat or the sun. And the demonstration of these occurrences, he commanded us to make Sukkot in order that we remember his wonders and awesome deeds. And the rabbis discussed this in the Talmud and the sages discussed it well, that Sukkot isn't really about building these little shanty huts that we stay in. Sukkot is remembering when God came among us and protected us. 
on that first night and for 40 years, he sustained us in the wilderness. It is about when we learned how to rely on God alone. We had no plans for food, no plans for water, no plans for restrooms. There were, there were no quick trips or 7-Elevens to be found. We had nothing. And God provided everything we needed. And was that easy? No! It is completely against our flesh to want to rely on that. God's way means it's not what? Our way. If it's God's way, that means I'm not getting my way necessarily, unless my way happens to line up with God's way. And spoiler alert, for most of my life, it is not. Throughout Israel's journey, there were a number of people who fell along the way who would very much sing the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. And they died in the wilderness as a result. A specific time we see that happening, and a very curious one, is in Bamidbar in Numbers chapter 21. Building up to it, Israel thought they were perhaps going to enter into the land. And Edom told them, no, you're not going to enter. So it says, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Sea of Reeds to skirt the land of Edom, as in taking the very long way around. But the people grew restive on the journey. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you make us leave Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread and no water, and we've come to loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent serpents against the people. They bit the people and many of the Israelites died. Very rarely do we get to actually choose the conditions of our lives. Very rarely. The decisions we make dictate a lot of what happens to us. And Israel had a choice in how they were going to process the long road around because they thought they were about to enter into the land and they chose to instead complain it's our decisions that often make a difference here. And Israel's choice to complain resulted in, in this case, snakes, which is a bit random, but we'll talk about that. Israel had a cloud of protection. They had bread falling from the sky and water coming from a rock. So their complaints here are lies. It's not even true. But when you get into that complaining mode, you can take a velvet carpet and find something you don't like about it, especially if it wasn't your choice to begin with. A modern Jewish scholar, Daniel Lowenstein, he makes a fascinating connection between this portion in Numbers and Israel's complaint and God sending snakes. And he connects it to Deuteronomy 8, when Israel is standing on the other side of the Jordan, getting ready to cross. And he makes some interesting connections because a lot of similar elements are in there. And see if you can make a couple connections here in Devarim. You shall remember the entire way in which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the desert in order to afflict you, to test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he afflicted you and let you go hungry and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your forefathers know, so that he would make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Rather, by whatever comes forth in the mouth of the Lord does man live. Your clothing did not wear out upon you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You shall know in your heart that just as a man chastises his son, 
so does the Lord your God chastise you. And you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to go in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land with brooks of water, fountains and depths that emerge in valleys and mountains, a land in which wheat and barley, vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of oil producing olives and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. You will lack nothing in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose mountains you will hew copper and you will eat and be sated and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his ordinances and his statutes, which I command you this day lest you eat and be sated and build good houses and dwell therein. Your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold increase and all that you have increases and your heart grows haughty and you forget the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who led you through that great and awesome desert in which were snakes, vipers and scorpions and drought. There was no water who brought you water from out of solid rock, who fed you with manna in the desert, which your forefathers did not know in order to afflict you, in order to test you, to benefit you in your end, that you will say to yourself, my strength and that you, that you not see, if my strength and my might of my hand has accumulated this wealth for me, but you remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you strength to make you wealth in order to establish his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as this day. Successful people know that you grow, you gain knowledge through struggle, through pain, and often through suffering. The quickest way to destroy someone is to give them an easy life where they're never challenged. And God tells Israel up front here in Devarim, you are having it hard for a reason. I have tested you. I have put you through the ringer in a lot of ways. And did you note the different connections there? It talks about snakes, talks about manna, talks about the water. And what does he warn them about? You're gonna go into this land and you are gonna have so much food, there won't be any poverty. You are going to have flocks and herds. There's gonna be vineyards and olives and all these things. So what was Israel really complaining about when they said, we don't like this manna. We don't have any water, which was a lie. They wanted to get into the land so they could have it their way. Because then I can plant my own food and I have my own streams and I don't need this stupid manna and I don't need that rock to follow us around with water. Because then I don't need God to provide for me because I can do it myself. And if you've been around a two-year-old that's throwing a fit, you'll often hear the, simil- uh, the commonly said phrase, do it myself. And so we become two-year-olds because we don't want to rely on God's provision. We want to do it our way. Israel wanted their stuff without God. And they thought they were just about to get it. And then Edom told them, no, you can't go through. So they have to turn back around and go the long way. And they start complaining about all this stuff that God had given them because it wasn't what they wanted. And we want what feels good and comfortable to us. We want comfort. It's 
It's in our, our bodies, our brains and our flesh is never gonna drive you to really improve yourself and draw closer to God. Your brain is designed to keep you alive. So things like pain, things like suffering, your brain will try to get you to actively avoid. And when it's something that is going to, you think maybe cause you pain and suffering, we will turn from it. Israel didn't want God's provision because it came to them with a cost. They weren't able to have it their way. No, get me to the promised land where I'll have my own flocks, God. I'll have my own streams so I can get my own water, so I can get my own food. So they're complaining about everything God had been doing for them. Our flesh resists God and we only want what we can control. And even when we learn a little bit to rely on God, that's still a thing we have to keep up with every day. It's not something you can do once and you're set for a lifetime. Throughout scripture, we see someone who starts out great, they learn reliance on God, and then at some point, a big stumble happens. One of those times it happens, we use the example of King Asa, king of Judah. He relied on God many times. At one point, there was a one million man Ethiopian army coming against him. He prayed and God delivered them from a million man army. He, didn't, he was outnumbered at least four to one. And then he had 35 years of peace because he trusted in God and God delivered him in an awesome way. But then in that 36th year, things didn't quite go his way. And he wanted to get other kings to help him instead of relying on God when he was running into trouble. So he sent a bribe instead of going to God and saying, this is my struggle, this is my issue, what do I do? And the punishment for that we see in, in 2 Chronicles 16, that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, when you relied on the king of Aram, you did not rely on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Aram escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Lubim, a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? But when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the Lord, his eyes run to and fro throughout the entire earth to grant strength with those whose heart is whole toward him. You have dealt foolishly in this matter. From now on, you shall have wars. It is not in our natural state to trust God. And when we have struggles, when we have issues, when we have problems, we, our flesh, wants to run out from God's sukkah and do it our way. We don't want the manna, we don't want the water from the rock, and we don't want his clouds of protection because that, mean, that means it's not me doing it myself. It means I have to trust him. And our natural state is not to trust God. We fool ourselves over time into thinking that those things I accomplished, that was on my own, it was on my own strength that I did these things, whatever it is. I don't care if you're Israel getting through the wilderness or if it's getting through medical school or a law degree or college, graduating high school, any kind of accomplishment you ever have, do not be foolish and say, this was by my strength. It is God who gives you strength. As Moshe told all of Israel, it is God who gives you strength to do the things that you do. But we make that mistake. Israel made that mistake. Kings made that mistake. And we do today. So it's no surprise that Israel did it in the wilderness. They were living with miracles. Most of us pray for our daily bread. Most of us don't expect it to fall out of the sky. 
we turn on water and it comes out of a faucet. And if you ever live without running water, that is a small modern miracle in itself. But it coming from a rock, this was there every day. But when we have all these miracles, we tend to turn to God and in our hearts we'd say, I'd rather do it on my own if you don't mind. And that is when we draw ourselves away from him. So when Israel was turning back and they said, we don't like this man and we don't like this water. We don't like anything about this. We were gonna go in the land, but Edom told us no. And we actually hate everything you're doing for us, God. And so he sent snakes. Why snakes? It, it seems a little bit random that, that God would send snakes. Uh, it's like he rolled a dice and already it was a three and three is snakes. So let's send snakes. But why snakes? And uh, Rev Hirsch makes an interesting point in his commentary on this, that it's that specific word that's used when it said, uh, and God sent, the Lord sent against the people venomous snakes. It's not the normal word used for sent. So an example for this, we're talking about Jacob making up with Isaph, and it says Jacob sent messengers, Vayishlach, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Jacob sent messengers, so he actively sent them. He identified them who he wanted to go, and they went. But when we get to Bamidbar, it's not Vayishlach, it's Vayishlach. The Lord sent against the people venomous snakes. It's different, hence the different words, and it's dependent on the, on the verb. But vaishalach versus vaishlach, one has more of a context of released, and the other is more in a context of sent. So another way to read Numbers 21.6 would be the Lord released against the people, the venomous snakes, and they bit the people and many of Israel died. God didn't actively Oh, you want to complain against me? Well, I'm going to round up a bunch of snakes and send them your way. That seems a little sadistic. What I propose he did is he peeled back a little bit of that protection that they'd had in the wilderness. Those snakes were native. There were snakes and scorpions and all kinds of things that are hostile to life. That's why no one else lived there. No one wanted to. They had supernatural protection. And so often in our lives, we will complain about something as if God has not been walking with us the entire time. And then so often he will say, you want to complain a little bit? I'll peel back a little bit of that protection and show you what I have been shielding you from. Be very cautious when you complain to God. Don't delude yourself that you don't need him because he might show you what he's been keeping you from. And we all need to ask ourselves, why does God have us where we are? Israel could have asked themselves, why are we in this place now? And what does he want me to do? Are we living for ourselves? Are we surviving but not living? Are we God-focused? Have we become complacent? Have we become our own idols because what we want is only for ourselves and we are not vessels that God is able to use for honor, but we will instead be vessels made unto 
dishonor, as Rob Shul writes. And what are you here for? There's a lot of questions around that. When we're in God's presence, in his sukkah, relying on him, and whether it's in the wilderness with literal clouds of glory, or whether it's in the promised land, planting seed and having harvest, because you can never forget it is God who makes that crop grow. Are we working towards the kingdom every day or are we just working for ourselves? Are we eager to see the temple be rebuilt and for the return of Messiah? And do we look forward to that with joy or are we just trying to impress the religious institutions of the day and whatever is popular today? And spoiler alert, what is popular today will not be popular in 20 years. We spend a lot of time trying to look great and not a lot of time doing what God has called us to do. Would you join me in prayer? We're not, we're not done. Adon Olam, master of the universe. Lord, it is you who gives wisdom. You put wisdom on Solomon. All things come by you. Lord, everyone who is here today, everyone who hears my voice, I ask that you would place the vision you have for them on their hearts, on their minds. Lord, I ask that you would put a powerful vision and you would open eyes that they would see and you would open ears that they would hear and you would call us out, that you would show us why you have placed us in the different places we are in our lives, in our relationships, in our friendships, with our families. Here at Etz Chaim, work and every other piece and component of our lives. Lord, I ask that you would show us the vision you have, that you would show us your vision, not the vision the world has for us, not some conjuring in our own minds, but you would grip each person with what it is you put them here to do, that we will not be complacent, but we will do the work of the kingdom and store up the treasure in heaven that you call us to. Amen. A story in the gospel of Mark, and, and Rabbi David spoke on this recently, uh, is the story of the rich young ruler. And so I'm going to essentially add a piece to uh, a wonderful draw she did on this just a, a couple of months ago. So in Mark chapter 10, as he, Yeshua, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, that's messianic imagery there, by the way, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Yeshua said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth. Looking at him, Yeshua showed love and said to him, Pause. Usually, if we are going to say something loving to someone, 
in our culture, I'm going to say something that is going to make you feel good and that you want to hear. So if Yeshua is going to show him love, what is next? If a teacher loves you, they'll give you knowledge. But let's, let's expand that a bit. If a coach loves you, what are they going to do? If, you have, if, a, if a football coach has a player who isn't performing to his best, is that coach going to give him a hug and tell him, hey, buddy, I'm sure you can do better? They're probably going to run suicide sprints up and down the, the field. A coach will be hard on someone, often ruthlessly hard, because they will find that thing that is holding you back and they will burn it off of you. And this man was coming to Yeshua and all we're told about him is he is rich, so he has wealth, he's young, so he acquired this before getting, you know, old. He did it quickly, which probably means he has a lot of skill sets and he's a ruler, meaning he has influence. This guy had already a lot going for him. He likely had a lot of skill sets that allowed him to become wealthy and gave him power and influence. And so Yeshua looked at him and said, you think those skill sets you have are for what you're doing in your community to be respected, that you are a pillar in your community and doing these good things. But guess what? All that money you have might as well be monopoly money because I have something so much bigger for you you're looking at building your synagogue and your local community. But you have no idea what all those skills you've been building up for these years can actually be used for. You think you have Park Avenue and Boardwalk with hotels on it? You have no idea what you can have. So Yeshua tells him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The part that has always struck me about this, and in our, in our Western mindset, we often quickly focus on, excuse me, in our human mindset, we quickly focus on him being told to go sell all of his stuff and give it to the poor. The big thing he missed out on here was something Yeshua invited him to. Come, follow me. He had an open, direct invitation to disciple under the master. And his stuff got in the way. He loved his stuff too much. He knew who Yeshua was. He had an opportunity to walk with him, but because he was so respected in his community and because of his wealth, he needed it his way. He needed his own stuff. He needed to provide for his own food, have his own water, have his own protection, have his own community around him, and he couldn't follow after Yeshua. And guess what? Now no one even knows his name. But a fisherman and a tax collector, billions of people know their names because they walked away from what they thought they were building with their own hands and applied those skill sets to what God called them to. This rich young ruler had a chance to walk with Yeshua and the tragedy is that he didn't. He had a great record of personal righteousness, one that most in America today would not be able to compare to, but he was not living the life God had called him to. 
He was living his own way. And that's where we get challenged. Israel wanted to live their own way. They didn't want God's presence. They didn't want God's provision. And they were punished for it. God peeled back a little bit of that protection and Vaishlach sent, or Vaishlach sent snakes. So my question for everyone, are you living the life God has called you to? Or are you just killing time and running down the clock? Are you living a path of minimal resistance? Are you stronger than you were a few years ago? C.S. Lewis wrote in the Screw Tape Letters, which if you're not familiar with the book, it's, it's a little, we'll say disturbing maybe the first time you read it because it's a letter from, uh, it's a series of letters from one demon to another demon. Uh, Screw Tape writing to his demon nephew, Wormwood, about a man who he is trying to turn from God. And at one point in the book, in the letter, he says, talking to Wormwood, because Wormwood has been trying to get him to engage in all kinds of horrible things and draw him away from God. Screwtape writes, you will say these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. A deck of cards. Netflix, TikTok, whatever's on your phone, I don't care what it is. It's all the same if it keeps you from doing what God called you here to do. And it's a matter of life and death. And life is more than a struggle to keep death at a respectable distance. We need to make sure we're living for God and not settling into the normal of a gradual, gentle slope with a soft underfoot. Whatever you tolerate will become your normal, and that is how you will die. Lots of people, 26 million people woke up today in North Korea with that as their normal. Hundreds of millions wake up across the world with a normal that none of us would ever tolerate. But it's normal for them. We have to look at our lives and say, what has become normal for us? What have I let tolerate for so long that is stopping me from being who God calls me to be? Because each and every one of us is here and now for a reason. And we get worried that if we surrender to God, he's gonna send us out to be a missionary in Africa and end up dying of sepsis or something. Get rid of that fear. You will become who you need to be only in God. Everything else will just be a waste of your time and it will be for vanity. When Jacob said before Pharaoh, he said, my years are many, my days are few. He was saying, I'm an old man 
that only a few of my days actually mattered. And in his mind, he was right. We're about to close. We'll close with prayer and then we're gonna read something together. Would the worship team please come up? Would you please stand and join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, rock of Israel and its redeemer. Lord, you called us out of Egypt to be our God. You called us away from vanity. You called us away from fruitlessness. You called us away from abominations. And you call us to serve you with joy, with Simcha Rabbah. Lord, I ask that you would grip everyone's hearts today, that it is not enough that we simply serve you begrudgingly and that we complain along the way. Lord, I ask that we would serve you with whole hearts, that we would serve you with, with eagerness, that we would serve you lovingly, that we would serve you with joy. Lord, I ask that you would place on the hearts and minds of everyone here the vision that you have for them, why you have called them here. Lord, I can't give it to them. You have to do it. I cannot draw water from a rock or make heaven bread fall from heaven. That is you, Lord. I ask that you would speak into the hearts and minds of everyone here and you would show them the path you want them to walk, that you would show them who you want them to be. Lord, I ask that you give no one here an easy life. Lord, I ask that you would give everyone here meaningful, rich, full lives where they store up an overwhelming amount of treasure in your kingdom in heaven. Lord, I thank you for this festival of Sukkot when we remember when you dwelt among us in clouds of glory, keeping us as your people, your bride in the wilderness, that you protected us through that journey, that you are a faithful God, that to reconcile us to you, you would dwell us again and become flesh, that you would dwell among us and you would indwell in us. There is none like you in heaven or on earth, and there is no one who can compare to you. Lord, we thank you for being our God, for being our Savior, for being our King. Amen. Before we close, we'll read the first bit of Psalm 27 together. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. From whom shall I be frightened? When evildoers draw near to me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies against me, they stumbled and fell. If a camp encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. If a war should rise up against me, in this I trust. One thing I ask of the Lord that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to see the pleasantness of the Lord and to visit his temple every morning that he will hide me in his tabernacle on the day of calamity. Shabbat shalom. Hak Sameach.